linguistic objects. Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. I'm Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. Now, in case you missed our last podcast, Psychedelic Salon number 7, you might want to go back and take a listen, because it's actually the first part of a talk we're going to finish up in this session of the Psychedelic Salon. And it's a presentation given by Zena, Allison, and Alex Gray at the 2003 Burning Man Festival. When we left off, Allison was just talking about being aware of yourself as a parent. And to be honest with you, that's something I wish I'd known about when I was helping to raise a family myself. So I hope that those of you who are new and prospective parents are taking good notes about psychedelic parenting here. Now we'll pick up the conversation where we left off before we were so rudely interrupted by such a mundane consideration as file size. So sit back, relax, and uh, hear what the Greys have to say about parenting in the psychedelic age. A lot of people ask us about uh, parenting in the psychedelic age, or we call it parenting in other mind states, because of the mind states. And, uh, you know, oh, we, uh, many of us are uh, users of substances and uh, in, a, in a country where, in a place, in a world, really, where, those, uh, where that use is, is illegal, dangerous because of its illegality, as well as dangerous just because of its uh, possibilities of, uh, of uh, mental instability or, or inability to cope with the uh, drug situation. But also, we, we uh, many of us, most, also all of us, I could probably say, have had positive experiences Ego dissolving, you know. 
So I just feel like that, you know, it's not a bad thing to be, to be abstinent for a little while, knowing that, that one day you can go back to those practices if they're important to you. when she was not around to smoke. And I, I do think that it's it's been my experience, and it's probably because of, of cultural um, practices, that the young people that uh, are Zena's age, 14, that are smoking, um, are not smoking responsibly, and that uh, they're, they're not drinking responsibly either. And this is, this is what they say, what the studies show, and it, it probably is because of cultural um, practices, but that uh, ninth and 10th graders at, at this point are, they are not casual or moderate users. There are no casual, moderate ninth and 10th grade users. They're, they, are, they are experimenting to, um, like they drink until they throw up. They drink until they're really way drunk. They don't know about moderation. By the time they're in 11th and 12th grade, they, they learn about moderation or they give it up altogether or they become addicts. This is what, what I've been told and what I've read. And I think that uh, young users uh, tend to not have uh, that sense of responsibility about it. And when they're, they have, um, you know, their lives, their activities to uh, attend to and they're growing, it could become a real distraction from, you know, manifesting their best performances in their life 
Uh, and I, I, I kind of thought it would be better, we both sort of thought it would be better if, if she waited. You know, we asked, you know, why her friends were all experimenting and she wasn't, you know, like, you know, uh, why do you think that you haven't tried it and uh, so many of your friends are trying? But she goes out with friends that, and they, they are doing it in the parties, you know, and sometimes, in the beginning she would leave, but sometimes she doesn't leave. They just smoke and she just doesn't do it. And we wondered uh, why. And she gave us two answers. Usually you don't mind me quoting you. Now, I remember it vividly, because it's one of my favorite subjects, is parenting and drugs, so. Um, but anyway, what, what she came up with, which, which I, think, I think she's very wise, is, number one, that uh, she, you know, has a, she, she's been a professional actress since she was seven, so she has her own identity. She has, like, developed an identity as an actress and as a professional person, as a, you know, her interests are very strong with her. Her passions are very strong. And in having those passions, uh, she doesn't feel like she needs to, you know, identify, you know, have this as an identity. A lot of her friends are using it to individuate. They're like, you know, I smoke, and they're one of the first ones to smoke in this and that. So, you know, she doesn't need that. And if she didn't have acting or, or the things that she does well, um, she might actually try it. That's what she said. She might actually try it just to kind of stand out in the crowd. Well, like, since everybody's doing it now, it's not like you're standing out and not, it's not like you're original. So, like, not doing it is original. It's not what I was, like, thinking this whole time, but, like, I'm not, like, I'm the original to be, ooh. But, like, no, but that's true. Okay, I, I just wanted to say one thing that was basically, you know, when, when I was, like, 12, 13, I had friends who were tripping. And for some reason, I, I was kind of depressed at that time, and and I just didn't do it. And, uh, and I didn't do it until like I was 21, and I met Allison. And of course, and it was a wonderful, incredible experience. It's changed my life, and, and uh, I have always been a great supporter of this uh, capacity that psychedelics have to sort of uh, add a transformative catalyst to our consciousness. Um, but it's really hard for me to say, looking back, uh, you know, I might have been able to have that early on, you know, if I had just ventured in to the uh, abyss and uh, swam around, maybe I could have uh, found my way through the sort of depression years of uh, teenagehood. It's really impossible for me to say right now. It worked out, it worked out perfectly uh, for me as far as my relationship and use of, of uh, acid, and I've been, uh, been uh, you know, an advocate of responsible sacramental use uh, ever since, but the, um, uh, it's really tough. The, those uh, times are just completely individual uh, decisions that have to be made. But, uh, well, I think that uh, sometimes uh, young people hear about, like their older brothers and sisters that may be going to uh, trans parties or some things, and some people do that responsibly and uh, find a way to, uh, at, you know, at its most positive, these are incredibly bonding uh, experiences w with a person, with themselves, when they're uh, dancing on ecstasy or something like that. They're... The guards are, are dropped down, and you're able to see uh, each other as expressions of this divine energy that you're one with, that the universe is a perfect place, it's a perfect teaching machine that you're part of. And so these, if they're very positive experiences and people are able to at least communicate a little bit about them and say that there are these possibilities, 
this is the whole thing about, you know, why there's so much uh, fucked upness about drugs, I think, is, is this loss and lack of communication. It's one of the things that Rick is trying to heal by uh, being out there with the MAPS Journal and by uh, and all of the efforts that people are doing when they're telling uh, a story that's appropriate of a trip that, well, one day I had an experience that, you know, to say, I took LSD and and this happened. Or if we were able at appropriate times, I know my parents have never liked to hear that, uh, that I had these experiences while taking psychedelics, but I've never uh, uh, shied away from sharing that. And I think that the more people that do share uh, whether uh, these experiences are of significance, the more a growing tide of recognition that uh, there is this possibility inherent in these substances, the entheogens, that uh, like a Walter, uh, or like a Houston Smith, you know, was... Uh, able and willing now it is uh, what's practically 80 or something uh, to come out and uh, and publish all these essays about cleansing the doors of perception he's the world's leading authority on religion and comparative of religion and uh, so for him to say that this was one of the most important experiences in his life uh, it sends a message uh, a credible message to a certain class of folks who are have ears to hear and so, slowly, I think that we may be able to get this message out. Um, and each of us talking to, uh, to folks and to try to counter the, the, uh, the, the drug war propaganda that has um, really jailed the minds uh, of, of young, you know, putting bars over uh, these possible portals into the infinite. You know, many of us living in this materialistic uh, kind of focused culture, are unable to open our doors of perception without uh, these kind of uh, explosives. So uh, it's, a, it's, a, uh, uh, it's an important message to keep getting out. It, it, the Washington Post uh, did an article on, the, uh, on this show that Allison and I are in, in uh, uh, Baltimore. And uh, one of the things was, uh, a headline in the in the post was linking psychedelics and spirituality. You know, it was it was wonderful just to see it, even if it was just a blast for a minute. You know, the more that we can get that message into uh, whatever media possible, uh, the more it, it, it. As someone said, the the uh, uh, the point of propaganda is not to make people believe what you're saying. It's to make them doubt the other shit that they're hearing. So uh, so we can use these uh, counter-propagandistic uh, stories and memes dropped into, uh, as little tinctures dropped into culture at various points, that we can at least make people doubt the drug war propaganda. There was a question as to whether uh, the art establishment uh, looked down on or blacklisted uh, an artist because of their known drug use and not being shy about talking about it. The thing is that uh, they don't talk about that. You just don't ever hear from them. And I've not heard from a lot of them. So, so I think that uh, Burning Man is uh, what I think of as the, the most 
effulgent, inspirational concrescence of creative energy on the planet. And I don't think anyone would, could doubt it or could counter it with, with, a, with another, uh, you know, well, what about this? Well, you know, it's just, yeah. Well, that's very cool. They're all very cool, actually, and we don't want to uh, denigrate any. But I just say, since we're here right now, uh, we can we can recognize uh, that expression and and uh, what do we use art for anyway? Yes, there is a, a pecking order and do this most famous person in history and and they're in the art magazines and they get a review and all the rest of those things. Um, all you can do uh, is to just make the work that you want to do, you know, and maybe you don't want to tell this curator that you were tripping when you were doing that picture or something. That's up to that's up to you. Or maybe it's an opportunity for educating that curator that um, uh, not unlike Keith Haring, who's a world-famous uh, uh, artist of the 80s, and uh, and uh, grew great inspiration. In fact, credited uh, his entire body of work to the trips that he took. Um, it, maybe it's an opportunity for education about the, uh, the the opportunities that these substances can have for artists. They're visionary substances. We're working with, uh, as painters with a visual medium, or as filmmakers, or various other kind of visual media. Uh, they could be incredible tools in the toolbox of the artists of the 21st century. I just wanted to say that it's, we all know that it's important for us to stand up and stand behind the things that have moved and inspired us the most in our lives. And, uh, you know, what else is there to living? You know, if, if you're a Christian and being a Christian has moved and inspired your life, you want to tell everyone about it. If, you, if, you, if you've had... Uh, if, if what really moves and inspires you and has really, you know, been uh, uh, behind uh, all of your work, your best things, you would want to uh, talk about it and stand for it and not hide from it. But you want to do that responsibly and to the degree that you don't hurt yourself. There's a question about uh, where did I get my uh, level of knowledge and understanding about anatomy? Uh, Anatomy has always been a great fascination to me. My mother pulled out early, early drawings that I did when I was five and uh, ten and things like that, and they were drawings of skeletons. So evidently it's always been a, a subject that I've been interested in, the subject of mortality, because the skeleton, of course, in our anatomy, when we're looking at our internal anatomy, we're often thinking, ew, guts, you know, hey, you know, uh, uh, gee whiz, you know, I'm not going to die, you know. Uh, it, it, it's, it's like less avoidable as a, you know, like I'm a meat thing, you know. And so when you recognize that, it's always been a potent symbol for me, uh, the greatest symbol as human beings in human bodies that we have uh, to seeing that we are impermanent. Uh, on the other hand, it's a universal uh, that we share with each other. So it's a way to make a universal kind of self-portrait, is to uh, make the skin more translucent and to focus on the internals. So my interest in the subject came about through starting to uh, also, it was catalyzed by this tripping episodes where I knew that, well, I want to make art about consciousness. That's the subject. That's, you know, meaty subject. So... 
it's the most important thing in the, you know, in all of its spectrum. So, um, we're living this consciousness through this body. So, I better understand what it is, this package, and this uh, kind of black box that consciousness comes in, so that I'm able to speak uh, with some kind of uh, believability or authority about uh, the consciousness that's moving through it. So, uh, that was the the job and the predicament, and then I just taught myself the anatomy by doing the sacred mirrors. That was the uh, whole thing, okay? Learn the nervous system. It's been mapped out before, you know? So we just, uh, okay, go through that. This uh, this nerve goes here, this nerve goes there. And uh, you look at the bones. I already was a, you know, fairly decent craftsman as far as rendering skills and things like that. So I just uh, went into uh, approaching, educating myself by getting all, you know, tons of anatomy books. And I basically I got a job in a morgue for five years where I was able to do dissection work to prepare bodies and to uh, see the uh, the fabric of our you know physical uh, flesh uh, at uh, a very close range and uh, to understand how the things uh, fit together. Then I taught anatomy for ten years uh, for artists um, and uh, where we would. Uh, if you want to learn the anatomy and the gross anatomy, uh, one of the best ways is to uh, sculpt the skeleton. You know, uh, get an armature and sculpt the bones, each one individually, and then uh, put the meat on the bones. You know, put on the uh, uh, muscles. And this can all be done in clay. It's called an écorché. This is how we taught, uh, how I taught uh, anatomy for ten years. It's a wonderful way to teach it. The other way is just to uh, to draw it all the time. You know, just keep keep drawing it or paint it like I did in the sacred mirrors. And um, yeah, I was a medical illustrator also for about fifteen years. So um, all of that helped in learning the anatomy. Yeah. Thanks for asking. Um, he uh, asked or or commented that he heard that there was a benefit for the chapel of sacred mirrors recently. Uh, there's been a few. Uh, some in San Francisco, and uh, which I may have met some of you, and uh, a couple in New York. And uh, the uh, Chapel of Sacred Mirrors is a dream that we want to bring out into the world, lead the world. Uh, it's basically a house for this uh, collection of art, the Sacred Mirrors, and numerous other paintings and things, works of transformative art. And uh, we want to build a 21st century sacred architecture, and uh, it can take a lot of pointers from uh, David Best and, and the uh, pyramids that are appearing here. Um, I'd love to talk with anybody who's uh, connected with, with all that. We've been working with an architect, Keith Critchlow, and we've uh, found a uh, spot in uh, upstate New York at Omega Institute that has been uh, very... Um, uh, welcoming to this project, and uh, so right now we're focused mostly on the actual chapel uh, being built there. There are some restrictions as far as height and things like that that we have to work with uh, in that space, but right now the most exciting thing regarding the chapel is the space in Chelsea. Uh, Chelsea uh, in New York City is the heart of the um, art world, and uh, that's where the action is of like hundreds and hundreds of galleries 
and uh, even museums are there in Chelsea. And we've been given the opportunity to open a five-year space at, uh, let's see, uh, 530 West 27th Street on the fourth floor. We're given 3,400 square feet, and we've designed a space that we can, although the, the sacred mirrors, which I've always envisioned in the ultimate chapel, is being in a round room, these will be in a kind of a long hallway, uh, so, but all the sacred mirrors will be there. There will be about 20 other works as well. Um, and uh, so it will provide at least a space uh, for now that we'll be able to visit and see the work, hold events, possibly do, hopefully do, fundraising for building the actual uh, architecture uh, that we'll be able to then uh, move these pieces into. Uh, if we can raise $5 million in this five years, I think that we'll have uh, moved significantly forward to be able to actualize this chapel project. Thanks very much. So if you're in New York and a lot of people pass through New York on their way from here to there, whatever, you have to come and see us. And we will have events like, we, have a, we already have a monthly full moon prayer gatherings. We will have Art Sabbath where we uh, draw the model and paint and listen to music and show portfolios and groove. And we have a, we have a fab, fabulous shaman who holds ceremonies and, and other wonderful religious, uh, interesting religious leaders that chant and do various uh, events there. But our art Sabbath is going to be a big uh, draw and we'll have parties. And uh, it's in a building called Spirit New York. So you want to come. It, it'll open in the fall. Spirit New York is going to have a sort of rave club and it's going to have, you know, a restaurant and a bar and, pr pr like, massage and yoga and yeah. hydrotherapy. And it's a, it's a whole building called Spirit New York. So Spirit is in New York. It's going to be in New York, and we're going to be part of that. And we're being corporate sponsored by Spirit New York to have it. So when you, when you come to New York, definitely come and see Spirit New York and come to the chapel. Yeah. You know, you guys around here, and it's wonderful to chat for you and whatever, but uh, New York really needs this. And maybe if we get the chapel all done, we will do another one in California. Because we have lots of friends out there. It's sort of a dream. Yes, at uh, great financial uh, sacrifice to ourselves, uh, who are not rich people, we did not sell uh, any of the sacred mirrors, although we have been made, we have had offers made for the entire body of work. We had a uh, a, a sort of a ecstasy experience where we realized that uh, we needed to hold on to these works and uh, keep them for for people. And then there are the other uh, 20 or 30 pieces that we have not only uh, kept from selling some of the best loved works of Alex's that uh, we have not sold, but also have been buying back. We have bought back several pieces. We're, we're right now in the process of purchasing of repurchasing a piece called Prostration, which went on sale. Uh, the, the collector was looking for another collector and would not donate the piece to the chapel. We have many do uh, collectors who were willing to donate some of the best works, praying and kissing and some of the you know, really recognizable pieces back to the chapel when we have it, but this collector was not and wanted the money, and so we have been raising money to buy back Prostration. So if it's a meaningful piece to you or if you... If you uh, you know, have those kind of uh, that kind of uh, ability to to donate. We are we have projects like our our, our uh, collection fund 
where we where we do purchase back last year we purchased back nursing. We felt that it was important to have it in the series where you know, you have pregnancy, birth, you know, nursing, family. These are like a series of uh, of paintings that we felt needed to be together and should be seen together. Should be seen by people. It should be public and not just owned in someone's apartment. We. Yeah. We like to provide images, and we try to do that on our website. You know, we try to provide, you know, prints and small paintings are for sale still to try to, you know, motivate more collectors, and because you've got to get collectors to, to be interested in the work. But uh, but the larger and more important pieces that belong together really belong to people, and we're hoping that the chapel will uh, will be a public and permanent space for the work to be seen. The question was, uh, what was my experience working with Tool? Uh, yeah! 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 We're here! Thank you. I love Tool. I, uh, I, it, it's been one of the most inspiring uh, collaborations that I've ever uh, been fortunate enough to engage in. Uh, a, a friend, uh, Eli Morgan, and I've been working on a book uh, for this uh, that kind of is a catalog of our collaboration, starting with the CD and the story of how Adam uh, uh, approached me. Adam uh, Jones is the lead guitar for Tool, and he's an artist. He's an amazing artist. He's a, a filmmaker, and uh, his drawings of sort of mutant humans are, are really hilarious and, and terrifying. And, and uh, so he, uh, he loved my work, evidently, and met me at a gallery exhibit of one of my, uh, some of my art, and then he started talking about the possibility of working together. So every time it's just been uh, Adam calls up and says, "Hey, uh, um, you know, I'm doing this music video. Um, would you like to add one minute to it? You know, at the end, and it's sort of we need a transformation at the end." So he's been very open about, you know, like whatever you want to do. You know, just here's uh, we have the computer animators. Let's work together. And then he called up a couple weeks before their tour and said. You have any ideas for stage sets? And uh, so I had a few. We went back and forth, and then they made these magnificent 30 by 60 foot banners that were in their last tour in the sacred mirrors and many of the banners uh, there. And uh, it, it was uh, it was astonishing to me to see how they took it and integrated uh, how integrated I felt like their music and the performance of it in this last tour was uh, with the artwork. It was a, uh, I was completely floored. It's amazing. Yeah, thank Seriously. you. I just wanted to say that being, being involved at all for Alex's work uh, really expanded the audience for the work. And uh, you know, the, the goal of, of any artist or anyone, a musician or whatever you're doing, is to make more friends. That's our feeling about it. And so we made a lot more friends through because uh, Tool invited Alex to be uh, part of what they were doing. <laughs> Love. Love is all there is. 
I also wanted to say that uh, in expanding Friends, uh, our network of Friends, even further, Alex just finished doing the cover of a, uh, a CD for the String Cheese Incident. And this is another entire genre of music, you know, a separate genre entirely, so that, you know, so that uh, you know, there's a big String Cheese contingent here. So I wanted to make sure that we mentioned that and that, that this hasn't come out yet, but, you know, we're incredibly honored to be part of you know, the jam band scene and all those friends that we can make uh, in another whole genre of music. Oh. Yes. Yes. Hi. Yes. Hi. yes, my daughter here is a visual artist. And I'm just wondering, there's sort of a debate about art school, yes, or art school, no. What is your opinion? Okay, uh, a, a parent who uh, is here with their daughter, which is totally awesome, and and she asks, uh, what's your opinion about art school? And uh, art school, yes, no, she's an artist. And uh, well, you know, I had a spotty relationship with art school. Uh, I think that if you know um, what you want to do already, um, and you think that a community that you could link up with at a particular school would be helpful uh, in uh, educating yourself and connecting with other people. Um, you know, if you if you think that the environment there uh, can be helpful, um, and you already have sort of a direction, then it's probably not a bad thing. You know, it could be could be helpful. I uh, my personal experience was that uh, I I kind of had a direction and the art school wanted me to do a million other things you know instead of fulfilling what uh, what I was interested in. This is my basic complaint with all educational institutions is that they don't do an assessment of the individual and see what they're best uh, at in their lives and, and what they love doing and uh, then accelerate that, you know, or speak to that and inform that, you know, that's what I'd like a real educational institution to do is to care about the developing intelligence of whoever they're working with and each kid is a little bit different, you know, and so try to foster that, just not try to force you through this pasta cutter, you know, that cuts off all your creativity and dreams and things. So, um, at any rate, uh, I went to two years of an art school in Columbus, Ohio that was like that, like the pasta uh, variety, and uh, I had to leave. I had a four-year scholarship, but it was so disgusting and distressing, I, I left. And uh, then I painted billboards for a year, and uh, I had to raise money. My parents weren't giving me any money to go through art school or anything. And so I raised some money, and I found a really weird artist, uh, Jay Jaroslav, uh, and I was so fascinated with his uh, work that uh, I wanted to go and study with him. He was uh, teaching at the Boston Museum School. So I saved my money, and I decided to leave Ohio and uh, go go study with this guy. And it was a great year. Uh, I, uh, he was the guy that gave me acid for the first time, and it was in his class, uh, and uh, in relation to him that I met Allison. So, you know, art school for me was not about necessarily making the art, but it did, uh, it, it was a place where I was inspired eventually to become, you know, the kind of artist that I am. So uh, I left school after that. I never got a degree. 
and uh, I had a perverse thrill in teaching at a university uh, because of that. And uh, so, yeah, so I advocate, if you know exactly what you want to do and, and uh, you want to just do that, you know, instead of like spending the money on an art school, you know, buy yourself a computer and various other kinds of uh, accoutrement that might accelerate your art uh, product and, and doing what you want to do. It make an investment in yourself and your vision, and uh, and you can skip all that nonsense. Uh, otherwise, uh, if you feel like there's a community that you'd like to be part of, because uh, frankly, a lot of the uh, artists who've made it big, you know, and like David Sally and a number of his friends and things like that, they met in art school, the Cal Arts, you know, and there was kind of a, a bubble of of artists that at least knew each other. And there was a cadre that kind of took over the art world for a while. So if you're interested in the kind of political scene that is the art world as well, and it's you know it's part of a game to play, I'm not against playing that game with the art world. We want to transform the world. We don't want to exclude the art world, you know. So we have to, in some way, participate uh, if we can. If there's ways of participating uh, with the uh, whatever this legitimate art world is that we all imagine, um, that's in the art uh, magazines and things like that. How are we going to transform culture if we can't also insert our dreams into that world? So we shouldn't exclude them, you know. And uh, So be part of that if you can. Yeah. Just briefly wanted to say that I, you know, from the other, on the other side, I got advanced degrees in art. I went to art school and then went to more art school and then got more degrees. and. But for me, it was like, my, you know, I had the resources. My, I was lucky enough that my parents could uh, afford to pay for that. And uh, I left the pasta cutter school also and went to this school that I met Alex for, where you basically did whatever you wanted to do. And for me, going to school and getting more degrees was about my parents could help me to live and survive up to the point where I finished school. Then I'd have to go out and get a job. So I thought, oh, the longer I stay in school, you know, the more art I'll be able to make, and it was really, and they were they were up, up for it. If I got a master's degree and whatever, I had to take some academic courses along with it, and I was okay with that. So, I, you know, it was all enjoyable, and you do meet a lot of people, and all the equipment is there. Like, if you want to learn to do to to work in the photo lab, you don't have to have a photo lab. If you want to do silk screening, you don't have to have a silk screening studio. You can learn, and all the equipment is there. So if that if that's meaningful to you, and you're not being restricted too much, as we both were in our you know, pasta cutter schools that we started off with. Um, you know, and if you feel like the school doesn't restrict your, your you, you can you can get a lot, but don't take what your teachers say too seriously. I, we're really all always appalled, and most people are, by teachers who want their students to make work that looks like theirs or have really definite dogmas about, like, what is okay, what is art and what isn't art, what is okay, to, you know, how art should look and how it shouldn't look. You gotta you know, basically be, you know, Teflon and impervious to all that, you know, if you go to school. And, uh, and thank God for uh, those who are willing to support the arts. You know, we wouldn't have Vincent Van Gogh's work at all unless his brother uh, was there supporting him. You know, so parents who support kids in their art, you know, I salute you. And uh, any anyone who is, is supporting the uh, the arts, it's like thank God. You know, hey, we love you. All right, uh, I think we got to wrap this up. So uh, thanks so much, everyone. Uh, I really want to thank Jan, Allison, Alex, Gray, 
And for all of you people out in the sun and the outer periphery, thank you all for being here. Thank you again to Zena, Allison, and Alex, not only for that great presentation, but uh, <laughs> also for braving the noontime conditions on the playa. And for those of you who want to learn more about this family of great artists, you should check out their personal websites. Zena's is www.zenagray.com, Z-E-N-A-G-R-E-Y.com. Allison's is allisongray.com, A-L-L-Y-S-O-N-G-R-E-Y.com, and of course, A-L-E-X-G-R-E-Y.com for Alex. And if you'd like to hear the rest of our 2003 Planket Norte lectures that were held at Burning Man that year, before we get them all into podcast format at least, you can just go to planketnorte.org. That's P-A-L-E-N-Q-U-E-N-O-R-T-E.org. Or you can get there from the front page of our main website, which is matrixmasters.com. And again, I'd like to thank my friends at Chateau Hayuk for the use of their wonderful music here in the Psychedelic Salon, which, by the way, is a cut from their CD, Nature Loves Courage. Well, that's it for now. I do hope you'll join us in the next Psychedelic Salon when we'll be bringing you Michael Brownstein's talk from the 2004 Burning Man Festival. Michael titled this talk, Waking Up from the American Dream, and I think you're going to find it quite absorbing and For sure, Michael will give you a lot to think about. So for now, this is Lorenzo, signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.